here and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, February 9th, and I'm coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado. And I am joined, as always, by our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Andrew Walker. Hey, Brett, want to say hi to the folks? Hey, everybody. All systems go? All systems go. Good to be here. <laughs> cool. Also want to give a shout out to Corey DeVos, who is over at Integral Life, where he is manning Integral Radio, which is our live outlet tonight. And uh, hey, Corey, how you doing? And thank you, everybody, for joining us live on Integral Radio. It's always nice to feel you here with me in real time. So we have a lot to get to tonight. Uh, I'll start with a little politics, of course. It's the evening of the New Hampshire primaries, which is the first real primary of the presidential election here in the States. So it's a big day. And uh, the results are just coming in as we're talking. I think the last time I checked was about 10 minutes ago, there were 30% of the results in and Bernie Sanders is beating Hillary Clinton, which is expected. And uh, Donald Trump is beating, um, I think second currently is Kasich and then after that, Ted Cruz. So we'll talk more about that next week or when we actually know what happened and what's going on. But tonight, I, I want to talk about p politics a little more generally in a way, and that is how it is a really potent means of integral practice. I mean, there's a reason that politics and religion are considered to be the two impolite topics of conversation, and that's because they express very deep patterns of you know, my thinking, my feeling, what I'm identified with. And if you start screwing with my spiritual beliefs and my politics, you're screwing with me and my whole sense of identity. So um, I want to talk a little bit about that. And then I want to shift and go from the political to the religious and welcome a very special live guest tonight. And that is Thomas McConkie, who is one of my favorite young integral thinkers. And he's here to talk tonight about the Mormon faith crisis, which he just wrote a book about. So we will do that second, and then at the end of the podcast, we will hear from listeners. So that's the plan. So let's see. There's a couple ways that you can get in touch with me. I always love hearing from you. One is to go to our website, dailyevolver.com, and click on the orange button, which is right at the top of the homepage, uh, and it's the speak pipe button and you can leave me a voicemail. You can also email me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And what's the other way, Brett? There's something they can do on their phone? Well, if you don't want to use the SpeakPipe button, you can actually record a message using the voice recorder on your phone and then email it to jeff, jeff at dailyevolver.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. The yeah. SpeakPipe button is great, though. It lets you record something. If you don't like it, you record it. It's great. I mean, yeah. It's super easy. And we like to use them live on the show, or yeah. recorded on the show, rather. All right. So before we get into all of this, I want to encourage you, as I always do, uh, particularly if you're not really fluent in integral theory, to check out a couple charts that we've prepared for you that can really help you follow along what we're talking about. 
and Brett will post these in the integral radio chat window. And if you're listening later in the recording, you can find them at my home website, dailyevolver.com, where you can just scroll down the homepage a bit and you'll see a section called About Integral Theory. Click on that and right at the top, you'll see two charts. One is the levels of development. The other is the quadrants of reality. These are two of the five integral maps that are part of Ken Wilber's Aqua model. And they're all in there, but these are the two most important, so we put them at the top. Okay, so I wanted to share a little bit about how politics, and, you know, at this stage of the game in America, politics is the big story, because this is our once in every four years presidential election. And it's a great means, because it's juicy. As I said, it's so much a part of our deep structure of identity that it's really juicy means of integral practice. And of course, integral practice can be done with anything. Um, you know, basically we're practicing being integral. That is, we can do that regarding parenting or intimacy, spirituality, how we do our work, how we do our hobbies, whatever. And one of the ways that we practice integrally is to do something that we call turning subject into object. And I know that sounds terribly abstract, but it's really quite simple. So with politics, for instance, I notice that I, Jeff, have my opinions. I can watch myself have my opinions. I can have my attractions and my aversions to different political ideas, uh, like guns. I'm, I just have a natural aversion to that. I was sort of born with that. And I was born in gun country, but there you have it. Sexual liberation, I was for that. People I grew up with were not, are not, but there you have it. And I can watch these things arise in my psyche. I can watch my tribal nature arise in defense of my political team. And so what we're trying to do as we turn subject into object is to take what I thought was me, Jeff, my political identity, which I would argue for and fight for and believe in, and see it as something that I can actually witness uh, as it arises in its component parts completely under its own power without any effort on my part. And it's really interesting to do that. And one of my favorite sort of practices, if you will, in this is what I call the remote control test. And that is, which candidate, when he or she appears on the television screen, makes me want to leap for the remote control to mute them or turn them off because I literally can't stand to hear their voices? You know that kind of aversion, that kind of hatred? You know, I remember, like, after college, when I had these roommates that I, I just finally got to hate them so much that I hated to watch, watch them eat or brush their teeth, and everything was repulsive. So, you know, how is it that that happens with a political candidate? And there are a couple candidates in this category for me, and, and they kind of come and go. But the reigning king for me is Ted Cruz, <laughs> who, you know, I just don't experience as being sincere. I mean, I, for me, he's a textbook sociopath. We have the relentless ambition that we've seen since high school with, 
we see this wake of political enemies that he leaves behind and, and the dearth of friends and supporters, especially among the people who actually work with him and know him well. And then there's this special flavor in Ted Cruz of this fake sincerity. Uh, I, at least two conservative columnists, one of which, which was Je uh, George Will, and I forget in the other one, but both conservative columnists, and Ted Cruz is a conservative, have used the word oleaginous to describe him. And oleaginous is um, oily, and, 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 but oily in an artificial way even. It's oleo. It's, it's what margarine used to be made of, which we used to call margarine, oleaginous. And I see that too with this thing he did in Iowa, a couple things, where on the last day he mails his supporters this voter violation mailing which looks official. It looks like it's from the state of Iowa, and it proceeds to lay out the number of times that you and your neighbors, you and your neighbors by name, how often you and they have voted in the last elections. And the sort of undercurrent is that the government's watching you and, and your neighbors are watching you, so you got to go vote. And he got a smackdown from the Secretary of State in Iowa for false rep representation of an official act and it just struck a lot of people as very smarmy to do that. And then, of course, the night of the primaries, where he tweeted to all of his followers and his field operation that Ben Carson, who is his number one challenger for the evangelical vote, that Ben Carson was leaving the election. And, you know, that, of course encourage people to go vote for Ted Cruz because Ben Carson was no longer in the running. And then he gives this slimy apology the next day. And then when he wins, he, you know, praises God. And, you know, the whole thing is that, you know, uh, so I noticed this. And so far as I noticed this, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm nothing special here. I'm a fairly typical liberal. I don't think I have one friend, at least not in Boulder, who would disagree with anything that I just said about Ted Cruz or the conclusions that I come to. And I bet that most of the people listening to this podcast would agree. But so we just don't want to stop there. This is where we begin the integral practice, where we turn subject into object. So again, the integral practice is to watch this whole constellation, this whole system of Jeff contemplating Ted Cruz arise under its own power. So I sit and I watch the thoughts arise, and they coalesce into an argument that adds up to the case against Ted Cruz. I just gave you the basic bones of it. I see his face in my mind's eye, or I see his face on television, and I notice my body sensations. I notice a revulsion in my belly and loins. <laughs> And it's the same kind of revulsion I would have if I had just eaten a whole tub of margarine. You know, it really is oleaginous. It's just such a great word for him. Slightly nauseous, you know. And then I see in my mind's eye, um, you know, the pictures that arise. I, I hear the narration of my inner voice. I feel the body sensations. And I knit those all together. And that, that's my opinion. And that opinion is not only my opinion, it's a big part of me. It's who I am. And it's 
you know, my whole life has been devoted to the health, welfare, and greater glory of this Jeff thing. And I notice that. I watch that. I see that. And so with this practice, all that I, all that first person becomes it or third person. I begin to see it arising in a greater space of awareness. I see these it's, these eyes become it's, these first person becomes third person. And they rise, these thoughts, these body sensations, these images arise, they torture me, and they pass away. <laughs> That's paraphrasing the Buddhist. But it's true. And at, with that practice, I can see them instead of be them. And that just loosens the whole thing up. It aerates it. It allows it to expand into a greater space where we can, again, see this, what we thought was self, as object. And, you know, as Ken Wilber says, the, one of the ways of describing particularly personal consciousness evolution is that the subject of one level of development becomes the object of the subject of the next. And that's a very important principle, that we watch ourselves and then we realize that, wait a second, if I can see what I thought was me as thoughts and feelings and images arising, then who's this me that is seeing that? And that's a bigger me. And that's, you know, in, you know when you're working with, at this stage of the game, that's the integral me. Now, another integral practice that I can do is a practice of polarity thinking. And this is just basically a thought experiment where I look at, this is kind of a shadow experiment too, where I look at whoever it is that is evoking this contraction or this aversion from me. Or you can do it also with people who you are attracted to. And so we'll still work with Ted Cruz here. And so I want to, as a thought experiment, take on the view that Ted Cruz is not a complete, lying, sleazy, slimy, oleaginous hypocrite. That he is actually a sincere person who deeply believes in his positions. And, you know, he's got a big hurdle for, for, for a lot of people. You know, one is that it doesn't naturally flow that somebody who has been through the Ivy League, as he, is, as he has, and so very successful, and you know, in Washington, D.C., and his wife works for Goldman Sachs, and they live in a uh, high-rise in Houston, Texas, and, you know, that he's modern through and through, that he can also have these deep evangelical beliefs. But integral theory shows that, that this is absolutely possible. One of, I think, the most genius of Ken's uh, realizations with his aqua model is that people evolve not as one blob, but we evolve in various lines of development. So people can be at a high line in terms of human relations or in terms of cognition and understanding and mathematics and how the world works and all of that good stuff, but still be, in terms of their spiritual line of development, um, down in the traditional. Uh, people walk around like that all the time. I've been in that situation. Many of you have been in that situation. And then, you know, your emotional line of development, your um, 
uh, interpersonal line of development. All of these are remarkably independent. So that helps me to maybe loosen up a little bit and allow Ted Cruz to maybe be a sincere person. And, you know, I think of his history with his karma. And, you know, he, he was uh, born of a Cuban expatriate couple, exiled from Cuba. His father left his mother when he was a baby and he was a drunk and he, you know, basically abandoned the family. And then he found the Lord. He got religion and he came back and took care of the family and actually became a pastor and a good dad and everything turned out well. And this is, you know, a classic red to amber move. You know, the man who's drunk, who's unable to keep his commitments, unable to keep a job, basically just unable to be responsible. And he gets organized by getting religion and disciplined by getting religion. And so this is deeply installed in Ted Cruz. It's a part of the deep history and identity of the family. And yet Ted Cruz is this, you know, young bright kid who's naturally smart and high achieving and and actually living in a a, a a modern world despite a you know very traditional even early traditional family and maybe he's as interested in being successful as he is in being faithful maybe even more so and so you know looking at his karma as best I can you know we can only do our best at looking at other people's karma but it's real and it's part of them. And so that helps me loosen up a little bit. And then maybe I realized that his problems with people, the fact that nobody likes him, I mean, that's not easy to go through life with nobody liking you. And it appears to be a longstanding pattern with this poor guy, is that, you know, maybe he's some version of being what we loosely call these days being on the spectrum. You know, the autism, the Asperger, the missing a piece of the antenna uh, where, you know, you can relate to other people. Or maybe he's actually, you know, worst case scenario, he's a sociopath. Uh, we often use that term as a pejorative, and, and it is because you don't want to hang around sociopaths any more than you have to. But it is actually a technical description of somebody who is unable to see other people as subjects, but they see them as objects. So they live in a world of I-it relationships rather than I-thou relationships. And everybody is a piece on their chessboard. And th they can be very successful. There was a study in Forbes magazine that showed that CEOs exhibit characteristics of sociopathy at four times the rate of the population as a whole. So in a way, it's another disability. And again, although you don't want to you know, hang out with them more than you have to, there's a certain sympathy that arises and you realize these people are actually doing the best they can. And then I also look to where can I find common cause? Where can I, you know, where, where, did the, where does the Venn diagram between me and Ted Cruz overlap? You know, he he's, appears to be very sincere in these fundamental beliefs that there is, as he puts it in his term, a Washington cartel, his favorite line that, is so entrenched and so corrupt that it can only be broken up by sheer force, that you can't work within the system. The system itself has to change. And I'm sympathetic with that, actually. 
If you look at the two apparent winners of the New Hampshire primary tonight, that's Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, they are both also operating and running on that kind of a position where they want to come in not to evolve the system, but to revolutionize. Not evolutionary, but revolutionary. Uh, that's what they're coming on, sort of this reform the power structure platform. And as I said, I'm sympathetic with that. And I, I get that there are a lot of people in this country who are sympathetic with that and a growing number. And particularly in states like New Hampshire, which is not unlike where I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. And I think of what's gone on in my hometown since I left in 1976 versus now, so whatever that is, 40 years, that the place has fallen apart in many ways. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad and my uncles, this was, you know, traditional, the men worked, the women didn't generally, but they could with one job and no college education. My dad didn't have a college education. He worked at the power plant. My uncles worked in the mills. They drove truck, but they could support a family with kids and vacations and cars and, you know, the whole bit. And everybody was in reasonably good shape. These working class people, they had a you know sense of nothing, and that's just the exteriors. The interiors, they have a, a sense of pride and they have a sense of accomplishment and, and meaning and identity in their work. It's really, really important. So that's generation one. Generation two, my peers, um, I'm thinking of some, you know, my cousins and my friends, uh, they could mm, get by. They could work a couple jobs. And, you know, maybe they got fired, they got laid off, the unions uh, fell apart, the steel mills left, they all went to Japan, they all went overseas, uh, but they can work for the print shop. Or they can maybe work two jobs at Walmart and doing some handyman work or something like that. And they could get by. You could, the place was so depressed that you could get a house for $25,000, $30,000, and that works but not like it did for their dads. And then you get generation three, and these are my peers' kids and grandkids. And you see really a very significant other level of degeneration, where first of all, and this is a big issue in um, New Hampshire, there's a lot of addiction, particularly heroin addiction. And you know that was unheard of when I was a kid. And that particularly for kids with no education or high school education or maybe not even a high school education, there's really just nothing. Uh, there's the dole. There's, you know, uh, basically a, a very, very difficult level of, of, of getting by that um, is not a good trajectory. And you can see why people who are good Americans, who, as Bill Clinton used to say, worked hard and played by the rules. There's no longer a way forward for them. And that, you know, it makes you sympathetic to these people who want to come in and, and do one version of the other of blowing up the system. So, you know, that's my integral practice with Ted Cruz, or some of it at least, you know. And so what happens with that? Do I end up more friendly to Ted Cruz? And and Donald Trump and and, and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, for that matter, who I'm actually more inclined to 
you know, I have a natural affinity for Bernie um, and sort of <laughs> a fascination with Donald. We'll talk more about him in a future show. I mean, he's going to be in the game here, appears for some time to come. But yes, I am more friendly to Ted Cruz after having done that. I can actually listen to him now. I can actually open my heart to him a little bit. I can see him as a fellow human being. I can see that his, a lot of his patterns of behavior that turn me off, like this, that relentless ambition, that opportunism, um, that, that's basically characteristics that are shared by high achievers everywhere. And, and a lot of people that, like Obama, that I, um, that I love. So, um, yeah, so... By the way, when talking about Obama, I hope you all saw the, I should tweet it out, David Brooks' column today. David Brooks, of course, is the so-called conservative columnist. He's not your rabid conservative. He's the New York Times conservative. He's the conservative columnist for the New York Times. And he wrote a column today called, I Miss Barack Obama. And um, he just talked about, you know, what I talk about often, which is we're going to miss this guy when he's gone. And uh, he talked about Obama's integrity and, and rectitude and how the administration has been remarkably scandal-free and the sense of basic humanity. As, as Brooks wrote, he said, Donald Trump has spent much of this campaign vowing to block Muslim immigration. You can only say that if you treat Muslim Americans as an abstraction. And notice that abstraction is an I-it relationship rather than an I-thou relationship. President Obama, meanwhile... Brooks writes, went to a mosque, looked into people's eyes, and gave a wonderful speech reasserting their place as Americans. And then he wrote, imagine if Barack and Michelle Obama joined the board of a charity you're involved in. You'd be happy to have such people in your community. Could you say that comfortably about Ted Cruz? And then he talks about his decision-making, his grace under pressure, his re resilient sense of optimism. And then the last line of his column he said, Obama radiates an ethos of integrity, humanity, good manners, and elegance that I'm beginning to miss and that I suspect we will all miss a bit regardless of who. So here, here. Here, here. Here, here, indeed. All right. Well, I think we should um, shift gears a little bit and move from politics to the other impolite topic, and that's religion. And welcome to the show... My friend Thomas McGonkey, who is phoning in with us tonight from Salt Lake City. Hey, Thomas, how you doing tonight, man? Jeff Saltzman, how's it going? Doing good. Doing good. good. So let me just uh, tell the folks just a bit about you. Um, you've been in the integral scene for a long time. You've been a meditator. You're part of Diane Hamilton's Sangha and Zen Sangha in um, Salt Lake City. You've been part of the faculty at Pacific Integral which is one of the you know, leading integral organizations in the country. Uh, and you've been part of their Generating Transformative Change program. And what we want to talk about tonight is your latest achievement, and that is your new book called Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis. And um, I loved the book, uh, not only as an insight into Mormonism, which I find quite fascinating, but also as basically a guide towards integral spirituality. I congratulate you on the book and welcome you to the show. And I guess first, Tom, I'd ask you, how does integral theory help us understand the Mormon faith crisis? And 
you know, and what is the Mormon faith crisis? And maybe I'll just start with you because you're a Mormon who went through a faith crisis. So yeah. <laughs> why don't you just start there somewhere? Yeah, well, thanks so much for that generous introduction. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to fill into where to jump into that. I am a Mormon. I was born and raised in Salt Lake City. And, you know, I come from pioneer ancestry. My, my relatives crossed the plains um, as faithful Latter-day Saints. And so it's, you know, deep in the culture here. And, you know, in my own shift into modernism, you know, at the age of 13, which I think happens for a lot of people, I started to ask questions that a 13-year-old asks, like, what's this story about a boy in upstate New York who discovered uh, golden plates that were written by prophets of ancient America and an angel told him where to, you know, excavate these plates. I just, the, the story broke down for me. And I think that would be, it's, I think it's quite normal in secular America for a teenager to wonder about these kind of miraculous accounts um, from the Christian tradition. But I grew up in a place where that wasn't so normal, that wasn't smiled upon. So it, it led to a massive faith crisis and a falling out in my family. And, um, you know, I took refuge with Gento Roshi at the Kanzion Zen Center in Salt Lake City. And, you know, that set me on my path uh, in Buddhism and eventually integral uh, adult development and so forth. And it was just in the last few years that it felt like a deep soul urge of mine to really, on a personal level, integrate my own Mormon identity. And as I started to do that as an integral practice, I realized that, you know, all of my pain, all of, you know, my falling out and loss of identity in the Mormon church, that wasn't just individual, that was collective, that there is an entire generation of people who are going through similar growing pains. So that's what really led me to write this book, really as a bridge, as a pathway into a, a more integrated, a more integral kind of Mormonism. Yeah. Well, what's so fascinating to me uh, about Mormonism is that, well, you know, I, I was raised Christian. And, uh, you know, at some point, and probably, I think you, we, you and I talked about it, uh, the same age, I was about 13 years old, when I realized, yeah. wait a second, this couldn't be. <laughs> None of this happened, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you, and that's just a natural stage of development where you become scientific and all of a sudden facts start trumping myth. And, you know, for, for Christians like me, it's a little easier to fudge it all because all of the claims in archaeology and so forth are 2,000 years old. In the case of Mormonism, they're 200 years old or less, right? And Yeah, that's... That's right. Yeah, and 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 so you know all of these miraculous claims and, and and so forth are really hard for a scientific mind to buy. Is that the faith crisis? Is that what people are leaving the churches? I mean, how do you see that, Tom? I think absolutely that's a big part of it. Maybe that's the primary part of it. It's that shift into a more factual orientation with reality. Um, and there's a growing number of Latter-day Saints or, or Mormons who, you know, they've, they've spent their whole lives in the tradition. They've, they've married in the tradition. They've raised families in the tradition. They've, you know, given 10% of all of their earthly belongings to the church. That, that's part of what, you know, active Mormons do to support the church and to express their faith. So they've given everything. And all of a sudden, you know, we're having outbreaks of, you know, stories about, uh, 
polygamy and how that played out in the early days of the Mormon church and how there, there may have been some cover up or right. some, you know, uh, prevarication around those practices. Um, the, the, goal, the Book of Mormon itself, you know, there's a growing number of people who are thinking, okay, how is this book that's inspired me for so long all of a sudden appearing as, like, uh, made up, you know, totally fabricated? And so it's a, it's a massive identity shift. And what I'm hopeful for is that, you know, the Mormon culture and the church finds a way to hold a broader spectrum of humanity so that people who are really ensconced and they're comfortable in a traditional orientation with it are honored and they can do that because it works for them. It supports them. It feeds them. And then for other people who are transitioning into, you know, what we would call an integral different altitudes, different stages of development, they're going to have a radically different relationship with Mormonism, but can we still call that Mormonism? And can we still, you know, worship in the same tent, so to speak. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you argue for that is so fascinating to me is that Mormonism is actually particularly suited for further evolution because <laughs> of part of the a couple couple tenets of the doctrine. One is the idea of continual perfection after this life, you know, we just continue yeah. to hold our identity. I'm I'm still Jeff. And I'm still surrounded by my family and friends, and I continue to, you know, grow and perfect myself. So that's one. Yeah. And then also the doctrine of, um, you know, that the, the, the scripture of Mormonism itself is fluid, and that the Holy yeah. Spirit is welcome in at any time to change things up. Wow. I mean, yeah. th- those are two really interesting, um, from a developmental standpoint— uh, interesting doctrinal tenets that, uh, you know, other religions don't have, particularly that second one where Scripture can evolve, uh, that, you know, they're like balls and chains for, for you know, traditionalist religions or axial religions. That's right. It's, I mean, Mormonism is a different evolutionary critter and other kinds of Christianity. And it, it's got a rich theology and a rich background. But the two things you named, we could just home in on for a moment. Um, uh, Ongoing progression, you know, that that is uh, central to the theology of Mormons and the experience of being a Mormon, which is, you know, we believe that uh, mankind will progress in an ongoing way infinitely, you know, with no ceiling on it. So the way that gets languaged in the the church is that we will become you know, divine, we will grow into our own divinity and godhood, gods and goddesses, a plurality, a multiplicity of unique selves, you know, to put it in integral terms. And, you know, to to pair with that, we have scripture, which has a peculiar definition in Mormonism, which is any time a prophet, an apostle, a leader is moved upon by the Holy Spirit, that is scripture. So that wow. alone, I mean, you know, imagine the uh, the the body of Holy Writ, the the canon of Mormonism is as fluid as water. Right? Yeah. You can hardly study it because it's changing day to day. So it's fascinating. I'm, I'm intrigued by what what continues to evolve in the Mormon tradition, notwithstanding yeah. its you know its challenges currently. Well, yeah, and and you know, so that's true, and and we've seen. Uh, certainly evolution in terms of race and, and evolution even in terms of gays to, to some degree, but it seems like we hit a little bit of a wall the other day where with, with the doctrine that 
children of gay people can't join fellowship or something. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's right, yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah, and you know, that happened the other day, and let's see what happens in another couple of days, right? No, absolutely. <laughs> no, for sure. And, um, you know, does anybody ever doubt that that, that, that will change as, as culture does? And that's, it's, uh, but at the same time, you know, there's a huge, I don't know if it's center of gravity, maybe you tell me, but uh, Mormons who are traditionalists, and they really don't, in their hearts, believe in that the sex, sexual revolution is progress in any way, shape, or form. You know, so that means all of it, you know, divorce, gays, sexualization of the culture, pornography. How can you possibly see that as progress? And these people, that's their religion too. They, you know, they have to be served as well. Not to mention the cultures where Mormonism is actually really taking off because it's providing a traditional, you know, organization to pre-traditional cultures, such as in Africa. Um, it's a really interesting game to have, it really to, is you right know, now. sort of... You see the church. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's it's the title of your book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crises. And, it, you know, and yeah. I, I love what, what you said. I think it's what one of the first lines in your book is, you know, I, I'm going to mangle it a little bit, but you said something like, you know, I'll grant you that there's a faith crisis as long as we stipulate that there's always been a faith crisis. Yeah. <laughs> you know. That, that's right. And, you know, I mean, that's really where I end up on the book. I, I start with the term faith crisis because it's becoming more common in Mormon culture these days, I think, because it's more prevalent, that experience of being in crisis. But really, that's, that's the beauty of integral um, and looking at the way adults continue to develop uh, throughout the lifespan, right? That, yeah. that, you know, crisis can just represent a dissolving of a former identity, like you were really beautifully speaking to earlier in the, you know, political section of tonight's show, that you take a perspective on the self, you disidentify with a certain Jeff, and that allows you creative space to become a new job. Yeah. But what if, what if faith crisis is just a natural cycle of spiritual growth that we, we undergo in an ongoing and an eternal round? Yeah. There's no end to crisis, and there's no end to the beauty that emerges from the crisis. Well said, and I think that's actually one of the integral moves, is that we start seeing crisis as, you know, as opportunity. And we, yeah. see, we start thinking, oh, cool. You know, this isn't working. Yeah. What's next? And yeah. uh, and that's that's a whole new ball game when you start embracing your crises and embracing your unwanted, you know, development, so to speak, instead of you know hiding from them or explaining them away or you know having another vodka. That, that's right. It's, you know, embracing <laughs> our own crisis and also embracing those you know at the different stages of development who may not identify with that category of crisis. They may feel perfectly fine on their perch, you know, their stage of development is their station in life. And like you were pointing to earlier, that's a deep shadow practice to honor people exactly where they are, yeah. particularly when it, you know, it gets under our skin. Somehow. Yeah, no, but what, so, a, what a relief to do that instead of just continuing to argue for our contractions. <laughs> right. Anyway, Thomas, uh, thank you so much for joining us live tonight. Thomas and I have, uh, we did a, a talk the other day for an hour or so with, that we'll be publishing here in the next couple of weeks. 
and I really enjoyed it, and I really recommend your book, uh, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to, great to be with you tonight. All right, that's Thomas McConkie. You can find out more of his work on mormonstages.com, and we'll have that link on the website. All right, Brett, I think we have a question from one of the listeners that came on SpeakPipe, and I believe it's on a topic that is interesting to a lot of integralists, and that's the topic of big history. So do you have that ready to go, Brett? To your podcasts uh, for years, I would say, and I'm not sure if you ever covered the concept of uh, big history. And I wanted to ask you if uh, you thought it might be useful to compare integral and the integral movement to the big history buzz. I think there's a lot of interest in big history. You hear about it everywhere. Uh, to some extent, it demonstrates uh, both the potential, I would say, as well as the shortcoming of the integral movement. Uh, big history is trying to explain a lot of the same. Uh, questions to answer some of the same questions that uh, integral theory does. Uh, however, it doesn't have nearly as good of an explanatory power. Uh, nevertheless, they have a very good brand, a lot of public relations, I should say. Uh, they are in TED Talk, they're uh, being discussed on NPR, they got a grant from the Bill Gates Foundation. And I'm a little frustrated about the inability of integral, the integral movement, the integral theory, and the integral life practices to penetrate uh, public discourse in a similar way. Uh, and this is not to belittle at all the wonderful work that you've been doing and everybody else uh, in the integral movement, but uh, has, as I often feel frustrated when I try to explain integral on my own to so many other people, feeling that otherwise I can't really have a full discussion with them about even daily uh, events such as the Daily Vora does or certainly more meaningful issues. So people are talking about big history as far as it, you know, looking at the big picture, connecting the dots, uh, helping them understand the universe better. I wish they were talking about, the, about integral theory the same way. I can relate to that. I can relate to that too. And it's very frustrating to me as well and has been. Uh, for a long time. And I am right with you that the explanatory power, I love how you put that, of integral is, is much greater than big history. But I'll, and I'll, I think I'll explain why that is in a second. But um, for those of you who don't know what big history is, it's a new uh, intellectual movement in the country that has gotten a lot of attention. It's, it's like our caller said, there's TED Talks, there's websites. Bill Gates is, you know, a big proponent, giving them lots of money. And what it does is big history tries to tell the biggest story of human history that we can tell from the Big Bang on. So it, it integrates um, physical science, chemistry, biology, human sciences, anthropology, history, economics, into one story from the Big Bang. And that's really, really new and really, really great. And actually, Brett, don't you have an excerpt from um, the Big History website that where they explain what they're doing? I thought it was really yeah. well said. Yeah. How did things get to be the way they are? How was the universe created? Why does it work the way it does? Why are stars so big? Why are you and I so small? Why do we find ourselves in this particular part of the universe on this tiny planet buzzing with life? Why are humans so powerful? What does it mean to be human? These are wonderful questions and they've been asked 
by people in all societies. And they've also been asked by a lot of people with great expertise. Geologists ask them, biologists ask them, astronomers, physicists, historians, anthropologists. What we want to do in this course is to take the expert answers and try to blend them into a single coherent story that will explain how everything came to be the way it is. Yeah, so, you know, as I said, that that's a really new story. And big history is, you know, maybe a decade old. And and actually the story that they tell isn't that old. We, we really underappreciate how new our current scientific creation story is, the Big Bang story. I mean, it was theorized less than 100 years ago, and it was proven to most scientists' satisfaction uh, exactly 50 years ago. It's been proven with other proofs since. So it's, you know, pretty much accepted science at this point. And so that's a story of that the universe has a beginning and it has a trajectory. And before that, you know, scientists, everybody thought that the universe was a steady state. And of course, religious people thought it was created by God and secular people didn't know how it was created. It was perhaps infinite and eternal in some way that they couldn't understand. But we know now that there was a beginning 13.8 billion years ago, and there has been a move towards complexification in all holons, and that's a little bit of a technical term, but we, holons are atoms which integrate into molecules, which integrate into cells, which integrate into organisms and sponges and reptiles and fish and mammals, and finally human beings. And, you know, there's something going on here. Now, even though what the, the, the announcer just said is, you know, they, they examine the question of why we're here and why they're stars are so big and why we're so small and why we're here in this history, why we're so successful. They actually don't really talk about why. <laughs> they talk about how and, you know, the measure and they give the story. But the why part, the, the meaning of it all is just outside of the purview of this kind of uh, intellectual inquiry. And big history is, big history, I, I would say that it's integral in this way. It's integral in, in the teal sense of the word, or in spiral dynamics, the yellow sense. It's sort of an entry-level integral, which is really good in the sense that it brings everything together. And it actually also gets this story of time, this, this evolutionary story. Teal understands that. So Teal sees, you know, all of the the human sciences, the, the physical sciences, it sees the beginning, it sees the trajectory, it sees how everything relates to everything else, the sizes, you know, it just, it basically indexes and organizes the cosmos. And that is a wonderful, fantastic thing and a great achievement beyond green. But then there's teal, I'm sorry, then there's turquoise after two. That's teal, what I just talked about, and that's big history. But then there's another level of integral that we call turquoise. And um, this is when you realize, once you get all of the pieces, you see the movements through history, that you start to get the sense that this whole system is alive and that every molecule of it is dripping with meaning. And there's the why, that they're, you know, again, this atoms to molecules to organisms, you know, there's something going on here. And it's something that, you know, science really can't 
penetrate because science is, to use the quadrants, if you looked at the quadrant diagrams, science deals with the exteriors, the materiality of the world, the, the stuff, the things that, that you can feel and touch and measure and compare. And science collapses the whole world, all four quadrants, into the right-hand quadrant. So science doesn't just recognize consciousness, but it thinks that consciousness is uh, in free will and beauty and all of the things that, you know, from a left-hand perspective, makes us human and, again, drenched in meaning, that these are maybe useful to organize us and make us more successful as, um, you know, competing organisms. And maybe it helps us to build organizations and communities and societies and it, you know, brings us coherence but there's nothing real about it. And that's not good enough for Turquoise. Turquoise says, wait a second, there's actually something here. There's actually something real about this. I was reading a book, I'm actually going to talk about it in one of the future shows, um, The um, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And, you know, he he is a scientist, and but he goes a little bit off the reservation. He's so tantalizingly Turquoise, it's really fun to read. And I know a lot of uh, people are in the integral world really like him and his TED Talks and his books, and I do too. But he says that, you know, he's talking about self-transcendence, this idea of, you know, this part of being human, where he offers this metaphor of a staircase in the mind. And that this staircase, as we evolve or walk up the staircase, it takes us from the profane levels of existence to the level of the sacred. Now, what that is is here's how he describes what it could be. He says, so here's the million-dollar question for social scientists like me. He says, is the staircase a feature of our evolutionary design? Is it a product of natural selection like our hands? Or is it a bug, a mistake in the system, that this religious stuff is just something that happens when the wires cross in the brain, which is what a lot of scientists think. Um, and he Talks, he talks about that. And he uses the example of Jill has a stroke and she has this religious experience. Is it, is it a mistake? Integral theory, as we move into the turquoise stage, we want to see, we do see, as I said, that there's something going on here. There's a movement towards, as, as Steve McIntosh writes in his book, Evolution's Purpose, that there's a move towards goodness, truth, and beauty, and that these have an attractive force. These principles, goodness, truth, and beauty, have an attractive force like magnetism and gravity have in the exteriors. But these have gravity in the interiors. But that's not going to pass the scientific test because science can't go there. Science can't recognize the dimensions of reality that it can't explore. Um, at least not explore in the ways that they've cracked the code miraculously. Science has miraculously cracked the code of the right-hand quadrants, of the exteriors, of the material world. But it doesn't know what to do with the interiors, except explain them in terms of the exteriors, which it does. You know, neurons and, you know, um, cohesion and reciprocal altruism and uh, all of these things that basically explain the enchantment of the world away. And so to scientific modernists, they're like big history. 
uh, like, uh, you know, Haidt and Sam Harris and the New Atheists and all of these people, there's two kinds of real spirituality. One is the Bible thumping of Ted Cruz and, you know, the fundamentalists all over the world and all the troubles that they cause, or New Age gobbledygook. Those are the two options. And that there is a post-mythic, post-postmodern spirituality that seeks to find a new, larger pattern in the teachings of evolution itself, in the obvious trajectory of matter. You know, it's like the old joke, how do you get the complete works of Shakespeare? Take a big mass of hydrogen and leave it alone for 13 billion years. And that is not a series of accidents. But until science is big enough to either, one, recognize that they can't go there, or figure out a way to go to the interiors on the interior's own terms, then, you know, we're going to have all of our integral books in the New Age section, which, you know, drives me crazy and keeps us in this sort of New Age ghetto while big history, you know, is um, getting grants from the Gates Foundation. But that's why, in my opinion. All right. So, Brett, I think we're right on the money here. And um, you, yeah. you have uh, an exit reel of some of the comments we've been collecting from those of you who click the speak pipe button or send us these voicemails. And that's really a great way to do, uh, to, to, to send us questions because, you know, the show. Hello, Jeff. This is Nina Potter. I wanted to tell you um, how warm and fuzzy I felt listening to an audio that I thought I had listened to a long time ago, and it turns out I hadn't, and I think I might have even requested it. You and Dr. Keith Witt talking about midlife crisis. It was wonderful. And I just wanted to share with you how positively affirming it was to hear the two of you being such good buddies talking so intelligently and so deeply about such a, an, an incredibly uh, pervasive and important topic. I'm a relationship coach, so a lot of my clients, their spouses are going through exactly what the two of you were talking about. Um, and although the integral perspective is probably more the advanced than most of my clients, I have been able to share it with a few of them that I thought were sophisticated enough to understand it. It made me feel so good about my own development in where I was in my life. To be listening to the two of you talking about this important topic and just thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. Hey, Jeff. What a great episode on uh, Bernie Sanders. One of the things that you said, which holds a lot of truth, is that the economics lags the cultural development. You know, the private sphere and the public sphere uh, dichotomy has brought up a lot of clarity, but that force that red economy had has totally distorted our social and development. Uh, this red history that I think, like, you mention it, but you don't know it. Like, you're still just looking at the show and not seeing the real bills that are going through, and you're like, I think that would cause every time to be like, why is that happening? Either Bernie and not Hillary, like what the less e evil, like Hillary, do whatever we need to do to make sure she doesn't get in. And right behind her is Trump, like do whatever we got to do to make sure he doesn't get in. And, you know, that leaves us with Bernie or somebody else that comes in, you know, later. Hi, Jeff. My name is Robbie. Um, I'm currently 
a graduate student at Columbia in my first year. I'm in the religion department studying Judaism. I've been a follower of the integral world since I was about 17. I mentioned Wilbur to my undergraduate advisor. I wanted to use integral theory in my honors thesis for undergraduate. But uh, my advisor said, so you're going to use a, a new age guru as a source. Um, so he wasn't very thrilled about me using Ken Wilber. Meanwhile, a few uh, a few weeks later, I found Wilber's book sitting in his bookshelf. <laughs> so he clearly saw there was something uh, going on. He was an unusual guy. I would like to, in my academic life, be able to incorporate integral theory. So I'm wondering if you could maybe say something about who in which fields is doing some stuff with integral theory. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the possibility for that kind of integral inroads into how we conduct academic life and how it could be incorporated into university education. Jeff, hi, this is David from Ireland. And I just wanted to say, as a relatively young integralist, I'm 37, so I guess I'm relatively young, um, that your podcast really provide a space of sanity for me framing the wider issues through an integral lens just really feels like a, a, a space that I can relax into and feel like everything's okay and there is a, a, a deeper sense to things even when they feel a bit chaotic for me sometimes. Yeah, I just felt I needed to say thank you. Well, thank you. Everybody listening and um, me feedback and just being part of the scene. And it's going to be an interesting week in American politics and, you know, an interesting week everywhere because evolution continues and we're going to keep an eye on it. So thanks again, folks. Jeff Salzman for The Daily Evolver with Brett Walker signing off. Bye.